today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. It all boils down to how we see God. And you see that God is moving in, in your life and the lives of others, and there's great expectancy about the future. And you have a confidence in what God's going to do through someone even as limited as, as I am and you may be. It all boils down to our faith in God. When we say God, what kind of being are we talking about? The truth is you have full access to God-sized promises. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Keys to the Promises of God, and shares how you can embrace all that God has made available to you through faith in Jesus. So stay with us. That encouraging message is coming up on The Winning Walk. Now here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Keys to the Promises of God. There was a day when Princeton Theological Seminary was filled with godly, brilliant professors who believed totally in the truth of God's Word and taught it in a resounding, attractive fashion. Men like B.B. Warfield, Grisham Makem, Robert Wilson, and the list went on and on and on of scholars who were unusually gifted in communicating and teaching God's truth. One man, Dr. Wilson, a Hebrew scholar, would always go back to Miller Chapel there on the campus of Princeton and hear every one of his former students when they would come back and preach, but he would hear them only one time. And a man asked him on one occasion, said, Dr. Wilson, when you go back to hear your students and you go back only one time, what are you looking for? What do you listen for? And he says, I try to determine whether or not they are a little godder or a big godder. He said, what are you talking about? He said, that's what I do. He said, I go and sit in the back row of the chapel and, and as they speak, I'm asking myself the, my, the question, if they are little godders or big godders. He said, if they are little godders, I know their ministry won't go very far and won't amount to very much and they'll always be in trouble. But he said, if they're big godders, I know that God will do something in them and through them in a wonderful way. And this colleague said, well, how do you make the distinction? How can you tell whether or not they were little godders or big godders? He said, well, a little godder will begin with a series of problems and he'll have a low view of Scripture. He said, a little godder will not perceive God to be someone who is actively involved in the lives of people and actively evolved in his life. And he said, I can hear him speak just for a little while and I can see how he views God if God is, is limited and, and small and in a box and is something to be manipulated rather than someone to be worshipped. He says, I know that I'm listening to a little godder and not much will happen to him. 
He said, by the same token, when I go to chapel and I hear someone stand and speak, and he talks about the God who is moving in history, and he talks about the truth of God's Word and speaks with authority in every utterance, he says, I know I am listening to a big Godder. He says, I know that his ministry will be used and blessed by God in a phenomenal way. Now, I've got a question for you. Are you a big godder or are you a little godder? You say, well, I'm not called to stand up and speak and teach the Word of God. That's not what I'm asking. It applies to everyone. I want to know whether or not you think you are a little godder or a big godder right now today, this morning. You say, well, how can you tell? I can tell. I could sit down with everybody here and in a skinny New York minute, I can put you in a category. I would simply ask you what you're worried about. And you would give me your list of worries. You don't have to be very smart to discover who's the big godder and who's the little godder. If you're worried about health and death and bills and law, little list of mundane, peevish kind of limited stuff, and, I can tell you your whole life, you're going to be bogged down in all the little minutiae and all the little conflicts and all the little problems, and that just engulfs your life with family or vocation or hobbies. You got all these relationships, and you're a little godder. But to sit down and talk to you. If I see that you're seeking to see the world in all of its problems and all of its assets and all of its potential, and you see that God is moving in, in your life and the lives of others, and there's great expectancy about the future, and you have a confidence in what God's going to do from, through someone even as limited as, as I am and you may be, I can see there you are a big godder. Literal godders are not fun to live with and to know. Big godders are exciting folks. You, you can't always spot them. They're, they're out there, up there, over there. It all boils down to how we see God. It all boils down to our faith in God. When we say God, what kind of being are we talking about? Are you a little godder or a big godder? Primarily depends on faith. It's a cartoon. Two birds on a limb. One bird is wearing a parachute. 
The other bird looks at him and said, Sheldon, you don't have enough faith. I like that cartoon. Because I see little, little Goddard-type folks wearing parachutes all the time. Because they don't have enough faith, or a lot of folks don't even know what faith really is. If I asked you, what is faith? Some people think that faith is believing something that is true. And here's something that you know that is true, therefore I'm going to exercise faith. I'm going to believe that which is true, but I'm going to work at it. I know it's there, and I have faith in that person. I have faith in that reality. I know it's true, and, and I'm exercising faith. Others believe that faith is believing that which they know is not true. I know that's not true. You know, I, I, can't, I can't buy into that. It, it's skewed, it, it's inaccurate, and there's problems, but I've got to have faith anyway. I've just got to gut it up and pick it up and think it out, and I know it's not true, but boy, I'm going to believe the unbelievable. I, I've got to have faith, and we think faith is believing that which is simply not true. Others think that faith is some kind of emotional feeling thing. Oh, I've got a little faith, but I've just got to get excited. I've got to, I know I've got to exercise my faith. I, I've just got to believe. I, I'm going to get married, and, and I don't have a lot of faith in this marriage, but I, man, I've got to get pumped up and get built up so I'll just know that it's true, and I've got to have more faith. It's feeling, it's emotion. So, so we try to ask the question of what is faith? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and we mess around in the Scripture and get some little shibboleth definition, but still we don't have it down. And then we come to church, and somebody stands up and uses a whole lot of big words and says, we are justified by faith, meaning the way you get right with God is through faith. And we don't know if faith is believing that which is true or faith is believing that which is untrue or faith is emotional or what faith really is. Maybe faith is just like a grain of mustard seed and that's the reason we wear a parachute to make sure that we won't go down even though we are born and equipped to fly. So we come to a chapter like Romans 4, and it's all about being justified by faith. And the illustration is Abraham. Perhaps in the process today, we'll begin to see what faith is by, first of all, seeing what faith is not. And then that begins our study in verse 13. Abraham has already been used as an example, you remember, in the verse 12 verses of Romans chapter 4, and you see it clearly there in verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And the proof here, the analogy here, Paul is trying to say to the Jewish audience in the church in Rome to which this letter was written, delivered by Phoebe, he was trying to say everybody in all times and in all places, the way they have gotten right with God is by faith in God. It's always faith, the same kind of faith we have that justifies us in Jesus Christ. 
In the Old Testament, that faith was faith in God. That justified them. They believed God. They believed in the promises of God. And the word believe is an interesting word. It says, Abraham believed. And they're quoting Genesis 15. And Paul proves here to his Jewish audience that Abraham was justified some 14 years before he was circumcised. He was justified before Moses. He was justified before the law was given. He was justified before the prophets. He was trying to point out that Abraham and all the other saints of the Old Testament got right with God, not through works or law or religion, but they all came to God and got right with Him just exactly the way we do in the New Testament, and that is by faith. And this was blowing the minds and exploding the theology of the religious Jewish people in that congregation. And that's what this is all about. And he quotes Genesis 15. Remember Genesis 14, Abraham had defeated the kings. In Genesis 15, Abraham asked God, he said, God, if these kings counterattack, what's going to happen? You know they outnumber me. And the answer came back. God said, I will be your shield. I'll protect you. But God knew that Abraham really was crying out for a son, an heir. He had no children. And God says, I want to make a promise with, to you that you will bear a son and your descendants will be greater than the stars of heaven. More than the star. That's a pretty big family, isn't it? Then he said, they'll be greater than each grain of sand on the coast of the sea. That's a lot of children, isn't it? And the Bible says, Abraham believed God. The word believe in Hebrew means to say amen. <laughs> I like that. So Abraham said, amen, so let it be. He believed the promise of God. He just believed what God said. And therefore, God says, you're okay with me. Hey, you're right with me. You've been Justified, And that is verse 3 of chapter 4. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The same word translated reckoned here is mentioned 11 other times in this very chapter. It means your account has been debited. Your, your bills have been paid. Therefore, you're right with God. And we've gone through a study of those big pregnant words that Paul introduces us to here in the book of Romans. And now he moves on and says, this is how faith operates. Let me show you what faith is not. This is verse 13, 14, and 15. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4 of Romans. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise nullified. Now, now what is this saying here? It says, verse 15, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, no rules, no regulations, no commandments, neither is there violation. What is this all about? Sounds double talkish, doesn't it? Anybody just stand up and say, that means hard to do, isn't it? What's he saying here? He's telling us what faith is not. Faith is not, and he's saying it over and over again, 
keeping a lot of rules. Faith is not what you do not do. In other words, you say, do you have a lot of faith? Oh, I have a lot of faith. I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do something else and I don't do that. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I'm right with God because I don't do all these things. When they asked Jesus about the commandments, they said, what is the greatest commandment? What do you say? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, and love your neighbor the way you love yourself. He said, that summarizes all the commandments. That's everything. But we're not going to get right with God by following the first and second commandments Jesus gave. Why? Because we can't do it. We can't love like that. Nobody here can love like that. That's the reason I talk to people and they say, you know, I'm trying to love my neighbors. I love myself and love the Lord thy God and all that. I say, well, lots of luck. You're failing. It's like I'd say, I'll give you $1,000 if you can fly, get up, just fly right out of your pew and make one circle right here and land. Now you say, boy, that's no big deal. I'd sure like to do that. You have a better chance of flying out of your pew and making a circle around this sanctuary one time than you do loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit and loving your neighbor the way you love yourself. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. You say, why is it there? It is there to give us principles upon which we can live after we have been filled with the Lord Jesus Christ, after we have been saved, that's what the law does. So you don't throw the law away. Law brings wrath, the wrath of God. We think, a lot of people say, boy, you know, God is a God of love and a God of grace. I can't see God as a God of judgment and a God of wrath. Let me tell you how wrath operates in this life. Wrath operates in this life by simply God saying, hey, go your own way. Just do whatever. He just cuts you loose from his protection, from his touch on your life. When you march out, when I march out into sin, the wrath of God comes on. It isn't God sends lightning, or it isn't God that sends a disease. God just simply says, you, you said you want to live your life your own way? I tried to teach you. I tried to lead you. I tried to guide you. I just back away from your life. You live it your own way. I meet a lot of people that are living together and they're unmarried. And this couple will look me right in the eye and say, you know, what's wrong with it? You know, we both agree. We're consenting adults. You know, what, what's wrong with this? I, and they really feel, as far as I can determine, no sense of guilt about living together and being unmarried. And some people are living together just because they don't have the same address for all practical purposes they're living together. They say, well, what in the world is wrong with that? We're running an experiment. We're seeing if we're compatible. We're seeing if it's going to work out. We're really finding out about one another. You know, what in the world is wrong with that? And sometimes they, they really are convincing. But when the law comes and these who are living together begin to hear the principles of God about adultery, then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit many times will bring guilt and a twinge of conscience 
that they'd never felt before. Now, those who are living in virtual ignorance about what they're doing is right or wrong, they have the law of hell and death upon them, though they don't know it. They wonder, why do I feel lonely? Why, why do I feel unsatisfied? Why do I have to have racket going all the time? Why do I have to stay on the move? Why can't I concentrate? Why, why do I have trouble getting on? And all the other, they don't understand because it happens so slowly and imperceptibly that their life is out of contact with the divine. And the law of, of hell and death is upon them, but they don't really understand that. They, they think everything they explain away in a different way. Now, when someone is living together in adultery and they hear the truth of God, thou shalt not, then there is a new feeling of judgment upon them. And hopefully the law diagnoses your sin and my sin, Christian and non-Christian, we begin to say, hey, this is wrong in my life. This attitude, this conduct, this way in which I'm living, this temper that I have. See, that's what the law does. It is a diagnostician. So just because we live by faith and are justified by faith, we don't throw the law out. The law has a very, very positive function for those who will hear it and understand it is from God. It's not God saying, I don't want you to have a good time. I don't want you to enjoy life. God is saying, this is the way I built this world. And you'd better get on the way the designer puts you together and put us together and put this world together if your life is going to ultimately count for something and if it's going to make sense. He said the law brings about wrath. And that's simply God saying, you're on your own. And I can tell you it is a lonely world and a frightening world when the hand of God is taken off any life. That's what faith is not. It's not the law. But then we see what faith does. Look at verse 16 and 17. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that's the circumcision, that would be the Jewish people, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, that would be the Gentiles, because Abraham technically, get this, was a Gentile when he was justified by the Lord prior to being circumcised. The circumcision was an initiation in the race. It was a a right, a seal of the fact he belonged to God. He was God's peculiar people. So the faith is the same here. The promise may be certain to all the descendants and to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith who is the father of all. I want you to see, first of all, the relationship here between faith and grace. Now, we love the word grace. It is a popular word. Thank the Lord for grace. How are, is the process of us being right with God, of us being justified with God, with you and myself being saved and sanctified and in the family of God, how does grace and faith relate to one another? Grace is unmerited favor, right? 
Grace is when we receive something that we do not deserve. We have defined grace as God's riches at Christ's experience. Now, how does that operate? It operates like this. God reaches down out of heaven and he has G-R-A-C-E on his arm. And he reaches down for those who want to get right with him. We, men and women, have written on our arm faith. And when we exercise our faith and believe the promise of God in Jesus Christ, and he reached down in grace, when faith from a human perspective and grace from a divine perspective, when these two join, there you have righteousness and justification. We are made right with God. We are justified by putting our faith in him. You got it? God reaches to us in grace. We reach up to him in faith, and that is a transaction that takes place. That's exactly what Paul is picturing here in the relationship between faith and grace. So this is what faith does. This is how faith operates. And then that next verse expounds on this e even more. It says, verse 17, A father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God. Now this is a big godder. This is a big God. Look what God does, the latter part of verse 17, who gives life to the dead, who calls into being that which does not exist. Faith takes us in the family of God, and faith makes us right with God, and faith in this kind of God we discover is a God who takes something that is dead and brings it alive, he takes something that's not there, that's void, and he puts something there. That's pretty good. Can anybody here take anything that's dead and bring it alive? Nope. Can anybody here take where there is nothing and put something in its place by speaking like God did? Let there be, let there be, let there be. Six days, six times, let there be. He created something out of nothing? That's what our God can do. And when Abraham exercised faith in God, he was exercising faith in a God who could take that which was dead and bring life, and a God who could speak, and when there was nothing, there would be something. Now, if you are worshiping and believing a God that tremendous, that gigantic, that Powerful, you're a big godder. You're a big godder. And that's the kind of faith Abraham exercised in this God. And then the other verses, he gives us sort of a panorama of faith, beginning with verse 18. He says, In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. This is Abraham now. Now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. <laughs> Did you get that? What was the promise God made to Abraham? 
that he would have an heir. He'd have a son. And this son would be the heir to the nations of the world, and ultimately there would be an heir that would inherit the whole world. That's a tremendous promise. But God had made this promise to old Abram a long time ago. And now Abram, when he was about 90 years of age, the promise had not been completed. You know what the word Abram, and by the way, that was Abraham's original name was Abram. Abram means the father of many. And in those days, your name stood for something. What your name meant should be an indication of your life. And so can you imagine when all the traders would come? By the way, Abraham was a wealthy man, a prosperous man. He had all the trappings that his ancient world would give to any individual. He had it all. He had everything. And can't you imagine when he would meet a new trader and they'd say, what's your name? Abram. Oh, Abram, father of many. <laughs> How many children do you have? None. Hmm. And everybody, what's your name? Abram. How many children do you have? None. And he went through the exercise for years and years and years and years and years. And finally, one day in his devotional time, God spoke to him and said, Abraham, you remember my promise? Yes, Lord. When are you going to do it? Oh, it's going to come, Abraham. Oh, I believe you, Lord. By the way, Abraham, I'm going to change your name from, from Abram. I'm going to change your name to Abraham. Abraham. Which means father of multitudes. And he hadn't had his first child, legitimately. And Abraham went home and told his wife, Sarah, he said, you know, in my quiet time of day, God spoke to me and said, my name is no long, longer going to be Abram. And she said, well, thank goodness. Man, we've been embarrassed about that for years. No children. <laughs> said, no, God told me I'm going to be Abraham, father of multitudes. She said, oh, my goodness, how are we going to handle this thing? And that's the way it went. That's the way it went. Now here are two old, old people. Abraham's body is, is dead. Sexually, Sarah's womb is empty. It, it, it's empty, childless. And he's 100 and she's 89. But look at the faith of Abraham. It's the craziest thing you've ever heard. Listen to it. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, verse 21, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. You know, I think I'd get a little skeptical along now. What about you? I'd wonder if I was hearing God correctly. You know, I, I would be a little confused. But not Abraham. Look at it. He grew strong in faith. What does this mean? When we have to wait in faith, this gives us strength. See, if we would just pray in a week or two and bang, that'd take place. Boy, that's great faith. But sometimes we pray about things, we give things to God, we cry out to God, we confess to God, we say, God, work this out, work through this, and we have to simply sit back and wait in faith. When you and I wait in faith, this makes us strong. This makes us grow. 
and how important it is that we grow in our faith. Time does that. Time does that. And he said, Abraham believed the promise. Would you have believed that promise? You say, well, I don't think, I think I would have faded out on God along there. Abraham didn't. That's the kind of faith we have to have. In the Bible, someone has counted 7,474 different promises. Did you get that? God has made in the Bible 7,474 promises. Let's just say, for sake of argument, that 5,000 of those promises are for everybody. Let's say the others were specific promises. And by the way, in, in the Bible, there are two words for promise. One is a conditional promise, and that is, I promise to do this if you'll do that. That's a conditional promise. Another word for promise is an unconditional promise. I will do that regardless of what you do or what takes place. You have my word on it. The promise God to made to Abraham was an unconditional promise. He made it unilaterally. You know, it was beyond understanding. It was just God's grace and Abraham's faith, and here's the promise. Now, if in the Bible there are 7,474 promises and say there's still 6,000 of those promises that are still available to you and me, I've got to ask you a question. How many of those promises did you claim for yourself this week? Did you pick out one of those, say, 6,000 promises that are still extant, available for you and me, and did you sit down on it and say, Lord, I claim this promise this week? How many did you claim? They're there. They're all over. That's a pretty good indication as to whether or not we have the faith Abraham had, doesn't it? Abraham sat down on that promise. And then the, the latter part of this chapter, it says, therefore it was reckoned to him as righteousness, verse 22, not only for his sake was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sakes, that's your sake and my sake, for our sake also to him it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, what is this saying? It is saying the fact that Abraham, who was dead in his body, and Sarah, whose womb was empty, when death comes to you and me and sin and our lives are empty, this God, if we are a big Godder and exercise that kind of faith, He can bring life where we're dead in sin. He can bring into existence there in that place which was nothing. Now, let's just drop back a minute. Abraham and Sarah had just bought a little home in Sun City. They were in a retirement community. Abraham, father of multitude with no children, asked by everybody now, not how many children do you have, they'd say, how many grandchildren do you have, father of multitudes? He'd say, none. Well, well how many children do you have? None. And you're the father of multitudes? He was dead. Sarah's room was empty, and maybe once in a while he'd kind of wink at her and say, Remember the promise of God? 
And she would say, yeah. <laughs> but then the news went out in the retirement center. This couple had nothing but Social Security and the promise of God. Medicare and faith. But can you imagine the excitement that came in the retirement center when the word went out that the doctor says, Sarah is pregnant. I'd love to go to that baby shower. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's the first time they'd ever had a stroller to move into retirement center, and this was one of the oldest couples there. Can't you imagine everybody walked a little taller and everybody took a little straighter step and, and all the couples look at each other and say, hmm, you just never can tell, can you? <laughs> because God, by the faith of Abraham, that which was dead, resurrection took place and that which was empty was filled with a child. You say, that's absurd. It's not near as absurd as the fact there are some here this morning who are grappling and wondering, can God ever forgive me? Can God ever forgive me for that affair I had with that little girl back in college that I can't get out of my mind? that I feel so guilty about. Or somebody is going to say, can the, can the Lord ever get me out of this habit I'm caught in that's just taking the, the joy out of my life? Can God ever get me out of this trap? Can God ever give me the courage to make right that money that I know I extracted that's immoral and illegal? Will God ever get me out of that? Those words of half-truths and untruths, innuendos, I uttered against that friend back there and nobody knows about it. Can I ever get extricated out of that particular painful situation? The answer, if you're a big godder and put your faith in Jesus Christ, as absurd, as impossible, as a 100-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman having a baby, let me tell you, exercise that kind of faith and God will forgive you, forgive me of whatever you put in that blank. He'll give you new life when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and your weight down upon God. What is this whole chapter all about? God is simply saying, become a big godder. He who can take that which is dead and bring it to life, he can take and speak that which when there is nothing and there is something, God is simply saying to everybody here, take off your parachute. By faith 
and what I have given to you and what I am doing in you and through you, you can fly. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.